Today's guest is Rick Allen. He is the CEO of ViewLift, but he's got an incredible background. He worked in politics. He's worked with a CEO for major media and tech companies before. He's met some icons of the worlds of politics and civil rights. Tune in now to hear more. Here to score it for us is the Master of Disaster Public Relations Specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the Reputation Doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. Is all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Hello, and welcome back to Reputations in Crisis. My name is Mike Paul. I'm the host. Today's guest is Rick Allen. He's a media and technology executive at the CO level. He's also been a speechwriter, a fundraiser, a state campaign manager, and he also worked for President Bill Clinton. In fact, while he worked for President Bill Clinton, he started something called AmeriCorps. So if you know the Peace Corps, we're going to learn more about what AmeriCorps is. But beyond that, he not only worked in politics and in business, you understand that his strong desire and need and passion for public service comes through everything he does. He's currently a CEO of a company by the name of Lift, which works in the streaming business of all kinds, not just as a platform, but with a customized approach to doing it at the highest level. So Rick, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure, Mike. So let's do this. My first question is, Tell us about your book, which came out in 2018 on the 50th anniversary of Robert Kennedy's assassination, unfortunately. The name of the book was RFK, His Words for Our Times. How are RFK's words still so relevant today with ironically us still fighting some of the same issues from the 60s in 2021? Yeah. No, you're, you're completely right. And over my shoulder is the copy of the book, uh, which really was a great pleasure and was an update of a book that we originally put out, Ed Guthman and I, in 1993 for the 25th anniversary. So Ed passed and, and uh, I put out in his honor uh, and Robert Kennedy's honor the the new edition in 2018. The answer to your question, I think, is multifaceted. The issues are the same. And, and the two biggest ones are really what gives life real quality and how do we make it truly available to all? Um, and, and I think if you take those two questions, Robert Kennedy's approach, both in terms of policies and political approach, were both distinct at the time and very distinct for us now, but also gave us something of a playbook. I'd talk about maybe six things, clear and consistent message. Kennedy was extraordinary at that. Second, driven by really tough analysis of problems and looking for solutions that were reality driven. And for him, a lot of those were community-based and relied on individuals working together. 
And I think those policies stand up very well now, examined in detail. Third, he wanted to emphasize how common the concerns were among many, many Americans across the divides, which were as serious then as they are now, of race, of age, of income, because that was what led to reunification. We are all in this together, and we are facing issues which are much more held in common than, than are used to separate us. Fourth, Frank challenges your audience. Kennedy was one tough guy, and he wasn't afraid to mix it up, even when he was out asking for votes. There are countless examples of him going right in the face of his audience and challenging their assumptions, urging them to do better, not accepting the easy route out to try to find an easy way to get votes. He frankly was more interested in being clear and setting standards than he was picking up every vote he could get. Fifth, his words, and really this is why we bring so many of them, and that's the essence of our book, were just beautiful. And they were delivered with a level of passion that we have not seen since. And then sixth and finally, um, Kennedy was appealing to what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. And that contrasted then, and certainly contrasts now, with appeals that are based on fear. Those two directions have always been open in American history. Kennedy was very, very clear which side he came down on. He wanted to inspire his audience. And looking forward into the future to our own time, I believe he wanted to inspire us to be the best we could be and to try to make our country truly a more perfect union. The union was never perfect. Our uh, opportunity, our obligation is to try to make it more so each day and by each act. Rick, thank you so much for that. Um, Let's utilize an example. One of the primary examples I think of, as I look back at the tapes of those days, and I was born in 1964, when RFK learned on a swing with the media around that MLK was just assassinated. Let's show that clip. And then Rick, can you describe in your words why that was so powerful and why it connected with so many people, not only black people, but all people. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, black people amongst blacks, 
and white amongst whites, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with, be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. I think if, uh, if your listeners uh, and, and viewers go to rfkspeeches.com, which is our book's website, we have that full speech and clip. And we also have the excerpt from our book, which sets out the context for that speech. And it's really quite extraordinary. I won't go into it in any depth, except to say that we're talking about April 4th, 1968. There aren't cell phones. The crowd that Kennedy is speaking to did not know Dr. King had been shot and did not know he had died. Most of those in the audience, because there wasn't cable TV, there wasn't cell phones, etc. He was in an overwhelmingly black neighborhood in Indianapolis, impoverished and challenged. He had been uh, urged, almost ordered by the chief of police in Indianapolis and by the mayor, Richard Luger, who later became senator, not to go to attend what was supposed to be a campaign rally. Kennedy refused to take that advice, even though he was told he would not have police protection. And indeed, as his car uh, crossed into uh, the neighborhood, the Indianapolis police escort peeled off. So Kennedy is speaking here entirely extemporaneously to a crowd which is overwhelming black. And, and uh, he is informing them that their hero has been murdered and murdered by a white man. And I think what you see in that speech are a number of things. One, um, K- Kennedy is talking directly and personally to that audience um, from the perspective of a fellow victim based on the murder of his own brother. Second, he is not talking down to his audience in any way. Uh, if, if Donald Trump's uh, words have been analyzed to be operating at the reading level of a sixth grader, which they have, for Kennedy to quote the ancient Greeks was even in 1968 a pretty extraordinary thing to do. Third, I think, he was coming with a clear message, 
which is revenge and violence is an understandable reaction to an outrage, but it is not one which will advance the lives of communities or individuals, and something more is required. Um, and he felt passionately about that and communicated it effectively. And the results speak for themselves. That night, Mike, more than 100 cities uh, in the United States burst into flames. There were uh, tens of millions of dollars property damage, uh, many, many thousands of people injured, and uh, over 100 people, if my memory serves, uh, severely injured, a number killed. But Indianapolis itself was quiet. Robert Kennedy had asked that audience to go home, to say a prayer for the country and for the King family. And the audience, in fact, did do so. Um, that is a testament to the quality of those individuals to transcend their pain, but also the extraordinary power of Kennedy's message. Wow. So, Rick, your background. <clears throat> politics, business, media, tech, <laughs> public service. Um, let's transition in the same zone that we're in, which is sadly the challenges and crisis of race in America still today, and talk about what people now know as the two Kens, <laughs> Ken Chenault. Mm -hmm. And Ken Frazier recently, mm -hmm. one formerly of American Express, one soon to step down from Merck, two black CEOs, very few have ever been CEOs yeah. uh, that are black, and saying, can't sit on the sidelines anymore, yeah. have to get active. These societal and social issues overall are too important to simply listen to previous counsel, which is, it's too risky to do that. And their response now to all CEOs, not just black CEOs, but every CEO, you can't do that anymore. We're at a tipping point moment. These issues define who not only you are as a leader, but what your brand and corporation stands for in the world, not just America. Yeah. So what do you have to say of what's happening about that today? Well, I agree with you completely. And, and I would say I had the honor of, of uh, knowing Ken Chenault. Uh, slightly, not well, but had the opportunity to spend some time with him uh, when he led American Express. And I've always regarded him as one of the most effective and admirable uh, leaders in American society. Forget about business, just in general. So he's somebody I really look up and admire. And, and I think the two things at least operating here, that as you point out, um, one has been true throughout American history, although not uh, widely appreciated and certainly not universally followed. And that is that you have to live your values. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. Um, if you do not model uh, the values that you believe in, you will not be regarded uh, as, as authentic uh, and you will not be followed uh, in any manner. I think now uh, you're seeing that taken to the next step, which is that it is also responsible for uh, a, a CEO to demand that their society 
also lives up to its values. And I think that's what the two Kens were speaking about so powerfully. I think what has changed over time is I think there's a, a, a broader recognition that capitalism itself, a wonderful economic system, does not function if shareholder return is the only way you measure success. And I think what the Kens both did was deliver extraordinary shareholder returns as CEOs, but insist that the responsibility of those corporations were broader. And they reflected an understanding that their consumers, the communities in which they operated, their employees, all of the stakeholders in the venture in which they were empowered to lead, all of those folks had to be reflected in a perspective of society and in a greater um, achievement level for all of us if we were going to be considered to be business successes and personal successes. I personally know Ken Chenault, and uh, one of the things that he showed who he was as a human being is when he was talking to the mayor of the city of New York post 9-11, where he was thinking about moving some of his workers further out yeah. across into Jersey, and, and he said, more than happy to make a change in that plan, but you have to guarantee me that my people and anyone that comes into our building is going to be safe. So these are my demands. And it's going to include a greater presence of, of NYPD down in lower Manhattan and, and around where we are for uh, a significant amount of time. Yeah. Mayor wasn't expecting that uh, <laughs> and, and thought of him as some, you know, a uh, conservative guy that, you know, wasn't going to make waves that he considered that to be a wave, but he didn't understand what you just so uh, succinctly said, which is he needed to demonstrate leadership to his people. And it started with, they can't function and do what they're supposed to do if they're more concerned about not being safe in this building. Yeah. Well, and we've seen it, seen exactly that play out through the pandemic crisis we've been through for the last year and a half, right? It, it, it is, um, Maslow's hierarchy really works. If you are not safe, if your family is not safe, uh, you're not going to be focused on much else. Uh, and, and so leaders Let's have talk to about understand that. that. Here's what I've been telling CEOs and boards confidentially, but I've been sharing it publicly without saying who it is that I have been sharing it with since January of last year. You know, I do crisis management at a very high level globally. WHO, CDC, Fortune 10 companies. Yeah. When I learned what the scientists learned before it made it to the media, we were having conference emergency phone calls. And what I established back then was this. There's no going back. They started asking questions about going back already before we got into announcements mid-March. <laughs> yeah. I said, childcare, safe childcare, number one. Number two, safe schools. Yeah. Number three, safe public transportation. And number four, safe office towers. It's 2021. We still don't have those four completely safe. What is your opinion about those CEOs that are out there 
and those that are in the business world who are making decisions based on their own needs and wants and comforts versus those of their customers and their employees, including many saying hybrid is the way to go. And not hearing women and families say that's not the best solution for me because whether it's two days a week, I need five to have a plan so I'm not more focused on my family and I'm focused on work. Look, I, I think these are really difficult issues. And, and so um, I, I can be cavalier uh, about it, uh, but I, the, the reality of it for each of us running companies, and our company is very small, so um, that those problems are somewhat limited. But we had uh, offices in New York City and London and in India. We closed all of them on March 5th of last year which was very early relative to our peers, but in close proximity to all three offices, there were uh, early reported cases of COVID. And we made the decision that we could go to a work from home um, operation and that it was responsible to do so. We talked to our, we, we got the best advice we possibly could. And we had the opportunity at that time to get the advice from Ron Klein. Um, who was still in private life then, but had been Ebola czar for the Obama administration. Um, and we knew that this was likely to take quite a number of months if the then Trump administration did the right things to mitigate the crisis, which they didn't. Um, and, and so our decision was to go to a work from home environment. Now we have the issue of what happens in the future. And frankly, it's unclear to me. I've shared with, with my colleagues that my expectation is we are not going back to a five-day work communally in an office setting anytime in the estimated future. I think we will have, and we do have, shared space arrangements. So under circumstances where people feel that team meetings are best held in person, uh, they have the opportunity to do that. But I think we found, and, and look, we're doing it now, right? We're on a Zoom. Um, there are other uh, uh, technology-enabled solutions to the notion of working together as part of a team and accomplishing your work objectives. And being able to do it without two-hour commutes each way, which, frankly, some of my colleagues were doing from New Jersey into New York, That's right. um, they're a lot more productive. But the challenge of childcare and of the ability to see your children in school and therefore work your professional schedule uh, around those certainties, um, th those are not settled yet. And until they are, it's going to be very difficult for us to have full employment uh, and real quality of life for families. I think that's why the administration is working so hard on those issues and why they consider them to be vital and have put them together under the rubric of infrastructure. Because in the same way that roads and bridges make an economy possible and vibrant, so do school safety and childcare. But you can't talk about some of these issues if you don't live 
a similar life or truly have a strong and hopefully strongest skill set in understanding the viewpoint of others, even though it's not yours. I'll give you an example. A CEO who was out in the Hamptons in the middle of the pandemic and decided to come back because his kids were driving him crazy. By the way, his kids were in his 20s and they were all at the compound. Um, it's not like he was concerned about childcare for that. Um, but he, early on, as soon as he could, started opening up and started bringing people back into his office. And someone got sick during the time. And he called me in an emergency and said, is it my fault? And I simply said this. You told me that remote was working. You told me that you had never really had a strong virtual workforce before, and you were proud of it. But then you said you had a problem at home personally with an argument within your family, and you didn't want to be at your compound anymore. So your, your driver and security drove you back. And then you took your black car from Connecticut and the Upper East Side, your two different homes, to go downtown to the office. But let me tell you what I've learned, because you asked me to look into it, about the person who got sick. She's got six different people living in a two-bedroom apartment that's her grandmother's. She's considered an essential worker because she had to support you as a junior secretary coming into the office, or executive assistant coming into the office. She takes two subways from the Bronx through Manhattan to get to lower Manhattan to get to you. And with all due respect, you put her at risk. So, yeah, it is at least partially your fault. He almost wanted to cry because he'd never thought of it that way. And I said, here's the rule that I have been telling clients about this for the past year. This is a unique opportunity, sadly, a unique opportunity for you to get to know your employees of color at every single level, especially at the bottom, better than ever before. They have family members that have died two to four times the rate of which any white person has. Don't blame them. Get to know them. Well, Mike, where do I start? You know, I have no relationship with any of these people. You simply get on a phone and start by doing this. How are you doing? Yeah. I know we don't have a relationship. I'd like to start one. How are you and your family doing? And learn about your people. If you can't do that, maybe it's time for you to step down. That's how seriously I said it. you need to do so personally. Not your assistant, not somebody else on your team. The top ranks and senior leadership. If you didn't do that during the last year, shame on you. Well, listen, there's a reason you're called the reputation doctor, right? That's uh, dead on uh, advice. And I think it's important for each of us to remember um, the problems that come with power, whether it's political power or corporate power, are pretty well known and documented throughout human history. And if uh, power in a corporate sense serves to isolate you from your customers, your partners, your colleagues, you will not be effective. It yeah. may take a while for uh, the, the, the mighty to fall, 
but they will fall because of that isolation. And it's a shame that crises have to be so severe to shake us out of a comfort zone, which, which comes from being cocooned. Um, I don't think that's a very useful way to live. And my hope is that through this crisis, there will be some changes in attitude. And I think the one you outlined for your client is about as good a place to start as any. There's so many issues I'd like to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, AmeriCorps? Sure. Uh, where it is today, where is public service uh, beyond the CEOs in corporate America for young people, for older people, if they want to get involved in public service? Talk a bit about that, Matt Legacy. You, you bet. Um, I became committed to the idea of national service, civilian national service, when I was a kid because of Robert Kennedy, uh, interestingly enough. It was something that he championed uh, during his life. And he pointed to the success that uh, he and his brother's administration had with the Peace Corps abroad, Americans serving in foreign countries. And he felt that there was so much uh, work to be done here in American communities. And there was such interest in that kind of service, particularly, but not exclusively among young people. So he helped to lead to the formation of VISTA, uh, Volunteers in Service to America, uh, which is a program which we folded into AmeriCorps under President Clinton. AmeriCorps is the civilian national service program. It allows uh, individuals of all ages to serve in communities for one to two years through largely nonprofits at the local, state, and national level. They do all sorts of necessary work in our communities. They help teachers as teacher aides. They provide tutoring. They, they clean up streams, uh, parks, uh, uh, ocean shores. Uh, they inoculate children. Um, they've been tremendously involved in this pandemic, both in terms of the information outreach, particularly to communities that have been underserved by the medical system, but also helping to uh, take the uh, inoculations in the communities that don't have uh, reliable nearby healthcare. Um, the Biden administration as part of its stimulus package, has uh, uh, pointed significant resources into AmeriCorps. So again, we're talking about something that was established by legislation in 1993, we're in 2021. More than a million Americans have served through AmeriCorps. The results have been exceptional and well-tracked. It's incredibly effective. It returns well better than $1.70 uh, for every dollar invested. Um, and it's a terrific success harnessing Americans' energy to serve their communities. I'm incredibly proud to have had the chance to work with President Clinton on it and uh, to see the exceptional work done in the years since and I'm more excited about AmeriCorps now, thanks to the Biden administration's focus on it, than I've ever been, because it's finally got really substantial resources 
to mobilize Americans to help fight the impacts of climate change, to help us come out of this pandemic. We're going to need increased tutoring, teacher support, individual level instruction to help the uh, students who haven't been able to fully utilize remote schooling and get them up to speed so that we can empower all of our students, all of our children and create the workforce for the future. uh, And frankly, the citizenry of the future. Um, So I'm really, really excited about the prospects ahead. So each week I choose a t-shirt of a cause or an icon or something I feel is important to share. And this week's t-shirt happens to be Nelson Mandela. Oh my. Can you tell me any stories about Nelson Mandela? Well, um, Yes, and I'll try to do what was probably the most extraordinary experience I've ever had, both justice and, and it, in, um, in a limited amount of time. One of Robert Kennedy's most impactful experiences was in 1966 in a whirlwind tour of apartheid South Africa. Um, Nelson Mandela had just been sent to Robben Island. Robert Kennedy's visit was opposed by the apartheid government. He was able uh, to finally uh, secure the ability to to go and spent roughly a week uh, going all over the country and really electrifying it. 30 years after Bobby Kennedy delivered his Ripple of Hope speech at the University of Cape Town, his widow came to see the new South Africa. President Mandela said that Robert and John F. Kennedy had both promoted democracy worldwide. What happened to both Robert and his brother, JFK, indicates the extent to which they were ahead of their times. Transformation here under the leadership of President Mandela that is so without rancor or bitterness has given not only the people of South Africa great hope and optimism, but it's there for all the world to see that change can be done peacefully. The week-long visit by the Kennedy family members included meeting children at a daycare center in Soweto. Representing the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial and Citizens Energy Corporation, the Kennedys came to attend a memorial mass at the Cape Town University and for talks with political, economic and student leaders. It was as close to uh, inciting a revolution uh, as existed during that time period. It was incredibly important for him, for his views, Uh, And I've been told by ANC senior members from that era, very, very important for keeping up um, uh, their their spirit and their focus, knowing that one of the best known figures in the world was on their side and was bringing uh, uh, world attention to their problems. 1966. Fast forward to 1996. Mandela has been president for two years. Um, I said to Ethel Kennedy, Robert Kennedy's widow, you know, this is the 30th anniversary of your visit with your late husband. We really should go back. 
and we should see where South Africa stands now. And so with a group of her children, grandchildren, and friends, we went back uh, to South Africa. Um, we uh, covered the same stops, spoke at the same universities, met with business leaders, went into uh, what had been uh, the former townships where the Kennedy Foundation uh, had been making uh, microloans and grants to help the communities uh, empower themselves. Uh, we really had this incredible, incredible active trip, which ended with an invitation for Ethel and I and, and, and uh, two other members of our party to come up to Johannesburg to spend an afternoon with President Mandela. It was um, absolutely electrifying. And uh, it solidified um, my lifelong admiration for him, but also increased my understanding of what an absolutely unusual individual he was. Every South African we had spoken to up to that point, and it was many hundreds, and again, every level of society, age, race, you can possibly imagine. When I asked each of them, why has this country not exploded in revenge violence? The response was identical. And it basically was, well, if, if the individual was a black African, yes, I, I have felt the impulse to revenge because I lost a member of my family. Um, we've faced all of the consequences uh, of generations of apartheid. Uh, but I look at the old man. <clears throat> and they, they said to a person, I figured if he could lift himself out of that, who was I to not do the same? Amen. How could I um, interpret my personal pain as being deeper than what he experienced? And then spending time with President Mandela, I realized that, that the hopes of the nation expressed that way he not only understood, but embodied in such a unique way. I've never seen anybody in public life or otherwise who communicated in stories that were true stories. They were actual things that happened to him, but had this deeper level of them that I can only analogize to, um, to the New Testament's uh, parables of Christ. I can give another one. You, you so, you're, you're very moved by what Mandela did, and I, I know why, in meeting the man myself. But let's not discount the Kennedy story. A white, rich family who decided to get into politics 
had a second son go to a city after one of the greatest civil rights heroes, maybe just behind Mandela, used the example of a death in his own family to calm a people not his own, his own as being Americans, yes, but not the same race, not the same social status. The commonality was human pain. Yeah. Which in this international example of Mandela now was the same example you just gave about a city that could have been burned to the ground. Yes. That didn't based on words, but the words were so authentic. You know, I lost a family member too. And I know it feels like you lost a family member tonight. And I can understand why. This is how I dealt with it. I hope that you will listen to my words tonight and do similarly. You have examples of white folks and black folks in in South Africa saying that about Mandela. Because of the sacrifice that he went through, how could I do that? How powerful is that? And isn't that true leadership? Absolutely. And that is, again, uh, what unites us as individuals um, across national boundaries, across economic gaps, across differences in, in, in race and circumstances. And uh, when we are mobilized in that way, as Mandela proved, as Robert Kennedy proved, we are capable of pretty extraordinary things, including self-discipline um, and, and in working together to solve problems. That's the essence of leadership. That's what's called for today. That's what Mandela and Robert Kennedy represented in their own times. And, and it's up to us as their heirs, one way or the other, to figure out that we will make the, the commitment uh, to moving in that path. Why did just the memory of Mandela move you so? Mm. Obviously, there's a lot of people who have stories, but what touched your heart several times in the telling of the story that got you emotion? Well, South Africa um, is an extraordinarily beautiful country. And in so many ways, it's so similar to the United States in terms of um, national beauty, in terms of the impact of a country of kind of colonial occupation, uh, the mistreatment of significant portions uh, of, of the population, historical injustices, enormous challenges, but all of the seeds for success. And it was just so eye-opening to go and travel uh, throughout that country and talk to people and understand what the truth and reconciliation process was allowing them to accomplish. And even more so, how much they drew strength from one person. I, I've, I think in United States history, George Washington for white male, but probably white female Americans at the time who were not loyalists, were not Tories, um, George Washington came the closest in our history to that kind of um, identification and representation of a national ideal. 
Not Lincoln? But it was Lincoln. Well, again, for slightly more than half of the white population <laughs> of the country and increasingly the enslaved population of the country. Um, but, you know, I've never seen that in my lifetime. Um, and, and to see it in South Africa, in Mandela, and to realize the guy was significantly more impressive, greater, more thoughtful, um, and, and existing on a different level, even than his lionized reputation would suggest, was just, um, just incredibly moving and impressive. And so, you know, I'm so grateful to Ethel for having given me the chance uh, to have that experience. Uh, and it remains, you know, one of the most um, extraordinary that I've ever had the chance to experience. So I've gone on too long and I lost control no, no. myself. So, no, I, lo I love it. You're at View Lift now. Yep. But you were CEO even before some of the examples I listed. Um, and of course, content leads the world now in so many different ways. But if I had to, and I do a, a recap at the end of the interview, and they'll hear more of the, about this. But to me, this interview was about EQ. Um, the, the thread that goes through everything we discussed, in my view, of analyzing it, is how important EQ is for leaders, whether they're in politics or whether they're in business or they're working for an, uh, an NGO. Um, how we as men suck at it and struggle with it <laughs> and we need a lot more of it. And uh, so my question is, as a leader now of ViewLift, um, it's one thing to talk about from a quantitative perspective and a technical perspective and a data perspective, how important content is, but we know we like to view things <clears throat> whether we're on a plane going to a meeting or we're with our family that touches this, our heart. Yes. And EQ is all about heart. So we know that the business is changing. Talk a bit about that and how we should be able to watch or, or hear it anywhere in the world or on whatever device we want, but you to sell it and for it to be branded and for it to be something we not only watch once, but we want to tell others about it, maybe watch it again or a third or fourth time. It's got to touch this. So add that to your message too. Well, that's a, that's a really broad uh, set of topics. Um, so first I, I'll just repeat what ViewLift is. We're a platform that helps other companies, content owners, both stream and monetize uh, their content. So it's sports leagues from around the world, some sports teams, it's entertainment properties from local television station groups like Tegna and Nextar to production companies to Bollywood studios, a wide, wide range of content uh, owners who believe really passionately in the stuff they put out. And to your point, Storytelling is what, con what drives content and storytelling 
turns on emotion and the ability to make a human connection. What technology enables is for individuals to have the content that they seek quickly, uniformly across any device, pretty much at any time and pretty much under any business model. Do you want to watch it for free? Well, then I'm probably going to give you ads. Do you want to watch it without ads? Well, then I'm probably going to ask you to pay for the experience as a subscription or a pay-per-view or whatever. Um, but those connections between the content owner and the viewer are now direct. They used to go through just cable companies, satellite companies, and the other intermediaries. And so the companies producing and distributing the content really didn't even know who the end viewer was, except from Nielsen numbers and whatnot. Now you can tell precisely who your viewer is. You can communicate with them. You can improve the experience by personalizing it. Um, I am a hockey fan, but man, I am a Washington Capitals fan. And there are particular members of that team that I especially follow. Heavy up that experience. Give me the folks I want to watch. If I like a kind of entertainment, help me along to understand what else I might like that has some of the same ingredients. Make the experience easy and frictionless. And so I think if technology is in service of storytelling, we're all going to be in good shape. The consolidation of the industry, which we're seeing at an exceptionally rapid rate, right. offers opportunities and challenges. And, um, you know, I, I applaud my friend David Zaslav, the head of Discovery, uh, at pulling off one of the biggest deals we've ever seen in our industry. Uh, and, and I am confident that he's going to find ways of increasing options for consumers. But that's what we have to do is keep expanding the pie for everybody. Give the chance to storytellers. They're more than ever. The ability to tell a story visually is so much easier than it was even 10 years ago. Think about right. what you can capture from your cell phone, right? That you can edit on your laptop, which would take a whole crew of people days in That's edit right. bays. Right now, storytelling is much, much easier. And so we want to ensure that the technology empowers that, empowers individual choice, and, and allows the storytellers to support themselves and continue their craft. With all that being said, there's good content <laughs> and there's bad content. Sure. And I'll use myself as an example, not only for me, but for my kids and for my family. I told uh, my family 10 years ago, as technology was getting better and people were starting to bring their iPads on a plane and download things before and then be able to play it. And why wasn't I able to use the Wi-Fi to just watch it then? Now you can on a plane because it's <laughs> strong enough, right? I mean, things have moved so fast. Right. But, here's, but here's the thing that really still moves me. When something has a strong affinity and it moves my heart, 
or my family member says, I really want to watch that. Yeah. I'm willing to pay $19.99 for it yes. right now. Then there are other things that I'm going to search for the free version of it. Yeah. Or I'm going to pay only $2.99 and watch it once. I'm even willing to pay $25.99 to own it. Yeah. If I can get it when I have that strongest affinity the week it comes out which is why the relationships between the studios and the theaters and the, again, you can continue to hold on to those old ways of thinking, or you can be cutting edge to realize I should choose where I watch the content. I should choose how much and how strong my affinity is. And it's going to be tied to dollars. And the more you understand me and that through the data, not just the things that you like to cherry pick that are still within your leadership ability, we're going to continue to have greater options for all. I think that's absolutely true, Mike. And uh, one of the things that makes the ViewLift platform pretty extraordinary is that the content companies who are our clients can reach their natural audience across any device, any over-the-top device, whether it's mobile whether it's the particular uh, boxes like Roku and, and Apple TV and services of, of that kind, game consoles, smart TVs, the web, uh, all of it. Uh, so universal accessibility, but also business models that the clients themselves can choose and can modify. And most of our clients do have hybrid offerings. So they may have a subscription service with free content available in front of that paywall. They may do pay-per-view so you can uh, own, own it after the fact as well, um, in addition to streaming it. That kind of flexibility uh, is an expensive technology to create. It's one we've spent years perfecting, uh, and it's an advantage for our partners, which is significant. When we look at the worlds of politics and business, we also seek to find ways in which we can have win-win solutions for society as well. There was a big push years ago, as you know, for more public-private partnerships. In some areas that went bad and created further crises. In some areas it was good. And there's a fear to go back into some of those relationships. Um, let's use parks as an example. They're deteriorating all over the country. We have major sports brands, for example, who would love to not just give back a park or uh, some of their products to help society, but there is a hesitancy by many liberal democratic leaders, for example, to let big business come in to help in any way, shape, or form. Do you believe that there's a place for business in that vein as far as public service and giving back? And if there's a win-win that, let's say a young boy might know that Adidas built his soccer uh, stadium uh, for his school or for his neighborhood, that maybe he has a stronger affinity to buy Adidas because they gave back. And they did it in a very good way by listening to the community and wanting to be more involved with solutions that were a win-win. What do you think of those types of things? Yeah, I, I, I think they're extraordinary. And if you take a look at what major sports teams are doing around the country, you'll see a great model in terms of community involvement. I want to single out 
our company's chairman and the founder of our company, Ted Leonsis, who owns the Wizards, the Caps, uh, the WNBA Mystics, and and other teams and and uh, businesses here in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, he and the the head of their community relations and foundation, Monica Dixon, have done an extraordinary job working with the city, working with individual communities to increase the uh, opportunities within those communities for recreation. It's completely consistent with a sports team, right? It's about as close as you can get. It reflects the desire of the players, uh, of all of the people who make a team possible, uh, who live in our communities and want to give back, to see that strengthened. And it allows uh, things to be accomplished, which the public sector, which the government alone just cannot do. So a close partnership between business, government, and communities is absolutely essential if we're going to achieve what we all want to achieve, which is a country that works better for all of us. Rick, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your service in more than one way to our country and our world. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Absolutely, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. Yours as well. Thank you so much. What an amazing interview with uh, Rick Allen. Uh, To me, we talked about so many different issues, but the thread that goes through the entire interview is obviously the power of heart work versus head work. Deeply understanding the viewpoint of others, deeply understanding emotional intelligence. And for especially us as men to be vulnerable and to work at opening our hearts in that vulnerability. I think we suck at it, quite frankly. I think that we as men have a lot to learn from women in understanding our heart more than our head. But when we do the affinity, not only for films and movies and content that Rick is involved with, but the thread goes towards why would I vote for you? Why would I respect you as a CEO of a business? Why should I donate to your charity or nonprofit? The answer is the same for all of those various sectors of life and society, which is because you made me care. And if you could speak to me with a narrative that allows me to understand how to care, you have my heart. That's a lesson for today. Thank you, Rick, for allowing us to hear your views and your experiences. Thank you for connecting those icons of civil rights and politics. And thank you for allowing us to think about what we can do personally as we move forward in the future. So thank you for joining us on this episode of Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Reputation Doctor. And remember, less head work, more heart work, peace. Also, remember to subscribe by hitting the red button on the YouTube channel and also listen to the podcast audio version of our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.